Tonight on the readout. I literally looked at him. I saw the, the, the smoke leaving the, the gun and I literally watched bodies drop. I literally was frozen. I just stood there. I like, I literally could be dead right now. It didn't kick in until I looked at my coworker and she was bleeding out of her neck. The violent society where any one of us could be the next victim of a mass shooting while right-wing politicians refuse to do anything about it. Plus, what we're learning about the Colorado shooting suspect from his neighbors and his social media accounts, how he managed to obscure a very troubled past. Also tonight, Mike Pence refused to talk to the January 6th committee about Trump's insurrection, which could have gotten the vice, former vice president killed. Well, now there's new reporting tonight that the DOJ wants to talk to Pence and that he just might do it. We begin tonight with Thanksgiving, the day we gather with friends and family to enjoy turkey, stuffing, mashed potatoes and pumpkin pie. We throw on the game, catch up on our lives and then discuss or quite possibly argue about religion and politics. For millions of Americans, it's a day of cherished traditions. And as Americans, we certainly value those traditions. But it's also important to unpack the myth of Thanksgiving. It is a holiday riddled with historical inaccuracies, built on this myth that the indigenous welcomed their colonizers with open arms and ears of corn, a simplistic fairy tale interpretation of a 1621 encounter between indigenous tribes and English settlers that erases the genocide that followed. It's the truth Republicans want banned from our textbooks, because here's the secret they want so desperately to keep. We are a country founded on violence. Our birth was violent. In 1619, a ship with more than 20 enslaved Africans landed in Virginia, ushering in two centuries of American slavery that left millions in chains or dead. And when those humans in bondage were finally free, a terrorist organization that was a card-carrying member of polite society, the Ku Klux Klan, picked up where the Civil War ended, using violence to maintain white supremacy. The Klan and its ilk are still active. And as Americans, we continue to choose violence. We are a country that chooses violence over and over again. There is no facet of American society that is untouched by it, as all the recent headlines remind us. But human violence is not just American. It is global. While we're preparing for Thanksgiving, rockets rain down on Kiev and several other Ukrainian cities, knocking out power and water. At least three people were killed in Russian airstrikes today, including a 17-year-old girl, less than 24 hours after officials said a newborn was killed by missiles that hit a maternity hospital. Our country is thankfully not being invaded by a foreign power, as is Ukraine. But it is not engaged in this, and it's not engaged in a civil war like in Yemen. And yet, our people are facing the same types of weapons that these people are facing in war a semi-automatic weapon barely different from the weapons soldiers are using in Ukraine can appear anywhere. Republicans made sure of that. So on any day, at any moment, you can get shot and killed at a supermarket or at a mall, at a hospital, at your workplace, at a cemetery, at a nightclub or a concert, at a movie theater, a parade, a birthday party, even among the most sacred of spaces, a synagogue or a church, and at far, far too many schools. In 2022, there have been more than 600 mass shootings in the U.S. The bodies aren't even buried before the next one takes place. Today, a Colorado judge ordered the suspect accused of gunning down five people at an LGBTQ nightclub held without, had him held without bond. It was the defendant's first court appearance. 
Then we woke this morning to news of another mass shooting, this time at a Walmart in Virginia by a manager who opened fire on his fellow employees, killing six people, this time with a pistol. Ah, variety. It is the second high-profile mass shooting in four days. We now know the names of the victims. They are Lorenzo Gamble, Brian Pendleton, Kelly Pyle, Randall Blevins, and Tynika Johnson. The sixth victim is a 16-year-old resident of Chesapeake whose name is being withheld due to him being a minor. Let's also name the three college students killed last week during a shooting in the same state at the University of Virginia. They are Devin Chandler, Lavelle Davis, and Deshaun Perry. How much more bloodshed will we tolerate? How much longer will we cower in fear, looking over our shoulders whenever we're out of our homes? How much longer, and now look closely, how much longer must our children endure active shooter drills in elementary school? How many more empty seats at Thanksgiving dinner? There is a way to fix it, quite possibly end it. But instead, we are trapped in a cycle of gun violence. It feels permanent because an extreme minority that has infiltrated Congress loves guns more than they love people. Whether it's their beloved AR-15 style semi-automatic rifle, the favorite weapon of mass shooters, including the shooter in Colorado, or the pistol like the one used in Walmart. We are stuck in this loop because America continues, no, insists on choosing violence. Violence that makes history's biggest global colonizer, the United Kingdom, blush, as British journalist Gary Young explains. I lived in America for 12 years. I very rarely felt the threat of being beaten up, but I often felt the threat of being shot dead. In Britain, I never feel the threat of being shot dead, even if I do occasionally feel the threat of being beaten up, and I know which one I'd rather do. Joining me now from Chesapeake, Virginia, is NBC News correspondent Cal Perry. Also joining me, Jason Johnson, professor of journalism at Morgan State University and host of the podcast A Word with Jason Johnson, along with Chris Brown, president of the Brady campaign. Thank you all for being here. Uh, Cal, I do want to start with you. Um, what do we know about this shooting in Virginia? At the Walmart. So we know it happened at 10:45. Excuse me, sorry, 10:15 last night, uh, 45 minutes before the Walmart closed. You can see where I'm standing right now. The parking lot completely shut down. But how many times have you rushed to a Walmart, to a store, just before closing, just before a holiday, uh, to get those last items? That's the way that this store was last night. It was packed just before closing. Uh, a 31-year-old man who's worked here for 10 years walked into the store with a pistol and a few clips and shot dead six people, three including himself. In Inside one of those employee break rooms. Somebody else, an employee, died at the front entrance. Three other employees managed to make it alive out of the Walmart, uh, but died in nearby hospitals. We now know that all of those that were killed worked at this Walmart, and we know the shooter who took his own life was a manager. Now, police are continuing to comb through the scene behind me. They want to get all the forensic evidence they can, uh, but of course, it's quite possible <coughs> that there will not be um, any kind of legal action here because, of course, the gunman is dead. I, I just I want to address sort of your overall point, though, um, which is about where we are as a country, because I spent the day here outside this Walmart reporting all day. Um, and one of the things that I was struck by uh, was 
members of my crew uh, witnessing people walk through here with their sidearms openly because this is an open carry state. Earlier this morning, not far from here at a Target, there was a false alarm of another shooting. Uh, police descended on that store. Um, and, and look, it, it's made everybody wonder, especially me, um, what do you do if you're a town that's on edge and you see somebody with a gun in an open carry state? Um, there's really nothing that you can do. It, it, it sort of confuses the situation even further. For a town that is on edge, for all the reasons that I said, um, it just seems to be a complicating factor. Now, in Virginia, there are certain towns and certain cities where you cannot openly carry, but you can here. Um, and it'll be interesting to see if we hear from more state senators, because we've heard from some today who are talking about shifting this legislation. But I don't need to tell you, we often hear that in the aftermath of these attacks. Uh, and then it wanes, Joy. This is why I'm afraid to shop in Virginia, to be honest with you. It's an open carry state. People walk around with guns. And we know that we've seen a case in Ohio where a man was buying a toy gun in a Walmart and wound up getting shot dead by police because in that open carry state, this black man was considered too dangerous to be holding a toy. Uh, I want to talk to you, Chris Brown, about this, because the governor of Virginia issued a statement. They do it all the time. These Republican governors, thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers. Well, there's an editorial that pointed out in, Mo in Mother Jones. He didn't use the word gun. Like, he left that word completely out. And I just want to show you how his lieutenant governor ran with him when she was on his ticket. Her name is Winsome Sears. Here was the ad. We're going to put it up. This is a picture of it. That's how they ran. They basically, the, the whole idea was book bans and guns. So your thoughts on his thoughts and prayers? Well, look, I mean, that is completely counter to what the vast majority of Virginians and I also, Joy, am a Virginian, uh, want and need from our state. We're coming up, actually, next this, this next year in 2023, we will have another election in Virginia. And I think and I hope that gun violence prevention is on the ballot because before we had this governor, we had a governor who actually ran and won on the issue of gun violence prevention. And we accomplished what everyone in Virginia said was impossible. We passed six laws to really change the demographic, change the nature of uh, gun violence prevention in the state of Virginia. Youngkin ran and one, not on this platform per se, but he is beholden to the gun industry. So what he and the legislature in Virginia want to do is actually roll back all of that. And to your point, it's a very, very dangerous and scary place to be. If you don't feel that you're shopping, you're going to church, you're dropping your kids at school, and there are basic safety measures in place that can protect you. It's not just why we need change in Virginia. It's why we need this Senate in the lame duck session, Joy, to pass the assault weapons ban that passed the House and the background check expansion that are both pending in the Senate. They need to take that, that up, both of those bills, and that will save lives. Maybe not yeah. the, these particular mass shootings, but a lot more. And some of what we just heard about, people would be saved. You know, and, and Jason, you went to college in Virginia. You've lived there. I mean, it's the thing is, there are certain states where, you know, it's open carry, Texas, Ohio, Virginia, places where I, I personally feel on edge. But it's really everywhere in this country where you just know 
People could, you could get got in the Walmart. You could get got at school. It could be in church. Like there's nowhere that's safe. There's not another country, as Gary Young pointed out, where not only that, where people run for office. We're just going to go through and just stick them up. People run for office basically saying, look at this gun. Look at it. Look at this gun. Look at this gun. Look at this gun. I have a gun. I have guns. I have lots and lots and lots of guns. Here we are. We're U.S. That's the number of firearms per person. Only Yemen comes even close to the number of firearms per person. It's half, less than half. But we are a country where politicians actually run for office saying, I might be deadly. I, I don't I don't get it, Joy. And part of why this story like really affects me is because I'm saying this. This is not as a journalist. This is not a political analyst. This is not as a college professor. But between Mother Emanuel, which killed an old friend of mine, Clint Pinckney, who was the pastor, and what happened at UVA, which is where I went to school, or the DC sniper, whose last victim was at the gas station that my family uses before getting on the highway on 95. Like, these aren't abstract stories to me. These are all places I've actually been, and not for work. They're where I just live my life as a regular person. And, and we are just two weeks away from really important midterms. I hope that people had these ideas in their head when they voted and stopped the red wave, because there's a solution to this. The solution is don't get crazy people in office. The solution is vote for state senators and governors and representatives who are going to say, no, you don't need to carry a gun in church. Don't really think Jesus was concerned about that. That's where we find a solution to these things, because the fact that so many Americans now can say, yo, I was there yesterday. I walked through that Walmart. I was at that grocery store. I have to keep checking in with friends. That is not a kind of country that we want to live in and not a kind of country we want to be thankful for. Yeah, I mean, I, can we just play this? This is cut four, four for my um, th um, director. And I'm just going to play it. And I want to go back to you on this, Cal, because you have been a war correspondent. Have you ever been in a country where people, where politicians do this? You, you know, if, yeah, if your country is like under siege, if you're in Ukraine, it's kind of badass right. to let people know that any house you go to, you know, this is um, these are American television ads. Have you ever seen like, anything like this in any other country where you've been, where you've done journalism, Cal? And keep playing it while he answers that no, question. And, and Go ahead. You're playing it, yeah? I, I've never seen it. Yeah, no, I've never seen it anywhere like this. I, and I'll give you an example. When I was in Ukraine in February and the war started, the government of Ukraine had a pretty serious debate about whether or not to hand out firearms to everybody in Ukraine. And they decided to do so. But the resistance was... They didn't want Ukraine to become America after some war. That was the conversation that they were openly having. I spend part of my time living in London. My kids live in London. My wife lives there. I know you have a connection there. People in the United Kingdom view the United States as having a gun fetish. And they view this as largely a decided issue because the number of guns in this country, and I cannot see the return monitor, but I think you probably put that number on the screen, the number of guns in this country per person is completely and totally ridiculous. So the idea that we're going to take guns off the streets if you talk to people overseas is a little bit absurd. The last thing I will tell you is, as you said, my relationship to firearms in many ways goes all the way back to the beginning of my career as a journalist, early 2003, the war in Iraq, right? So I see what firearms have done during the war in Iraq, the war in Lebanon, the wars in Syria, the war in Yemen, right? I see what firearms do in war zones. Well, 
They do the same things here. A high-velocity round fired from a weapon here in the United States does exactly the same damage as a high-velocity round fired overseas. Now, the gunman today, last night, I should say, used a pistol, but he killed six people in a very short period of time. The police arrived on scene here four minutes after the initial call went out, and it's not clear how many people were already dead, Joy. There you go. Uh, there is only a barely any difference between an AR-15 and an M-16. It's just not automatic. But it does the same thing because it was made to be almost exactly the same on purpose. NBC's Cal Perry, Jason Johnson, Chris Brown, thank you all very much. Up next on The Readout, I will talk to the Colorado reporter who learned quite a lot from the neighbors of the Club Q shooting suspect. The Readout continues after this. Today, we got the first glimpse of the suspect in Sunday's horrific shooting at Club Q in Colorado Springs, where five people were killed and 18 wounded. Appearing in court via video, Anderson Lee Aldrich answered three basic questions while slumped over, handcuffed, and wearing an orange protective suit. Aldrich is being held without bail on suspicion of five counts of first-degree murder and five counts of bias-motivated crime causing bodily injury. Just hours before the hearing, the suspect's public defenders claim their client is non-binary and uses they-them pronouns. Conservative media outlets have waved that claim like a bloody shirt, using it to try to blunt criticism that the surge in right-wing hate rhetoric from them and their politicians toward the drag and transgender community has led to an explosion in hate crimes. After the hearing, the district attorney prosecuting the case assured reporters that Aldrich's identity, if he is indeed non-binary, would have no bearing on how he would prosecute the case, including whether to charge hate crimes. But while the right was happy to take the word of an accused killer, it would be helpful, I think, to get the facts and to stick to them. So here is what we know. The Daily Beast is reporting that in a prior arrest in Texas, Aldridge notes his sex as male. Additionally, the Daily Beast was able to view text messages from the day of the shooting where his mother uses he and him when mentioning Aldrich. Writing for the Daily Beast, reporter Rebecca Hopkins spoke with one of his neighbors who referred to himself as a friend of Aldrich and claimed that Aldrich kept an assault style rifle and a burner phone in his one bedroom apartment and, quote, used the F term a lot. Most of the time it came from a place of anger. Media reports have noted that Aldrich was a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but has not been active in the Colorado Springs locations. The Mormon Church, until 2019, described same-sex marriages as apostasy, but condemned the shooting. A local CBS affiliate spoke with the suspect's estranged father, who is a mixed martial arts fighter and a former actor in porn films, embarrassment over which he says prompted his son to change his name and his mother to claim that he had died and who has a documented history of drug addiction. Here's what he said. No excuse for going and killing people. If you're killing people, there's something wrong. This is not the answer. I'm a Mormon, I'm a conservative Republican, and we don't do gay. We don't do yeah. gay. We don't do gay. Aldrich's maternal grandfather is outgoing MAGA Republican California Assemblyman Randy Vopel, who celebrated the January 6th insurrection. He says he has not had a relationship with his grandson in 10 years. Media reports also show that Aldrich was an active member in an online community that was notoriously anti-gay and just so happened to proudly tout kill counts from mass shootings. Reporter Rebecca Hopkins, who is based in Colorado, joins me now. Rebecca, thank you so much for being here. Talk to me about what the, the neighbors of this alleged shooter told you. 
Yeah. I mean, sometimes in these cases of violence, you know, you get neighbors saying, you know, we had no idea. Um, we're surprised. We're shocked. And I would say this was the complete opposite. Um, from the very start, talking with a couple of the neighbors, there were just red flag. There was red flag after red flag after red flag. Um, and definitely with that theme of homophobic um, slurs and um, attitudes and violence. Um, yeah, they were, I mean, shocked in some ways, but not all that surprised. Um, certainly there were the red flags. Let's just say that. Did any of the neighbors ever indicate to you that Aldrich ever claimed to be non-binary? No, I was totally shocked to hear that piece of news. And I would say, I mean, the indicators were, first of all, yeah, definitely using homophobic slurs. Um, the way the neighbors talked about him, they used he and him, the text messages they showed with, um, you know, his mom with them were referring to him as a son, he, him. Um, there was no indication of that on Monday. So the father claimed that um, he had not had any contact with him in over 10 years and also said that the mother um, told him that her son was dead uh, once his name was changed to Aldrich. Um, any did, did the neighbors say anything about the mother's relationship with the son? Did they ever witness how they interacted with each other? Because there is this previous case of him threatening to blow up her house. Yeah, um, I would say mixed. I mean, they lived together in, in, well, two different places. One, some, one place she lived by herself and his, he lived with the grandparents, uh, in, in the same neighborhood. And then the second location that he lived in up until two months ago, they lived in a one bedroom apartment together. Um, I was told that she slept on, or he slept on the couch. She slept in the bedroom, but there was fighting between them. Um, so, yeah, it was kind of a mixed situation, I would say. But yeah, definitely the, those red flags were really clear. And, and we they, know that they her would go shooting at the. Go ahead. I was going to say they would go to the gun range together. That was the other thing they would do together. And and was the indication by the neighbors that he already had AR-15 style rifles or that he was acquiring more? Because I did read in some of your reporting that he was trying to invite neighbors to go with him to the shooting range. Yes, he would show them to his neighbor, um, invite him to go to the shooting range, talk about specifically going to a specific one that would allow that rapid fire kind of practice. Um, and again, showing me videos of him at the um, gun range, his mom there, his mom sent the videos to this neighbor. Um, yeah, it was a big theme. And the mother is the daughter of a California congressman, an outgoing MAGA California congressman. He has claimed he has not had a personal relationship with his grandson. But if you got any reporting as to how it is, this is somebody who's the grandson of a prominent person who seems to have had the record of his previous violence wiped out. Is there any reason to understand why that happened or how that happened? I mean, I, I don't, I don't have any information at this point to report on whether it was somebody trying to, you know, because of political reasons or because of, of the person in power expunging that. I mean, in Colorado, it's allowed for, um, cases that are dismissed for various reasons to pretty easily get those records, um, sealed. And so I'm not sure what, it's not clear yet which direction that went, but we at least know kind of how mm -hmm. that works in Colorado. 
Um, I, I think, I, yeah, I, I would love to have you back, Rebecca Hopkins. Thank you for re your reporting. If you get anything else, wave your arms, as we say, uh, or, you know, virtually raise your arms and, and get back in touch with us. We'd love to have you back on. So thank you very much. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Still ahead. The New York Times is reporting tonight that the DOJ wants to question Mike Pence about his former boss's efforts to remain in office. That is next. Stay with us. In the criminal investigation into Donald Trump's attempt to overturn the 2020 election, the Justice Department may finally get to talk to someone who no one else has heard from under oath yet, former Vice President Mike Pence. New reporting for The New York Times late today says the DOJ is seeking to question the former VP as a witness in connection with that probe, according to two people familiar with the matter. Despite Pulling, despite um, ruling out ever speaking to the January to the January 6th committee in the House, Pence is, quote, open to considering the request, according to people familiar with his thinking. The discussions are said to be in their early stages. Pence, of course, was subject to the pressure from the, the pressure campaign inflicted by his former boss leading up to January 6th. Trump publicly and privately urged Pence to block certification of the Electoral College results. He was also a direct target of the mob that stormed the Capitol, some of whom chanted, hang Mike Pence, just to make sure they were clear. This comes after what has already been a pretty bad week, legally speaking, for Trump. The Supreme Court denied his last-ditch effort to stop House Democrats from getting his tax records. And an appeals court panel seems likely to throw out the special master in the investigation into his handling of classified documents, just to name a few. Joining me now is Barbara McQuaid, former U.S. attorney and MSNBC legal analyst. Uh, Barb, great to see you. So first, uh, this idea that Pence is considering the request, can he just consider it? I mean, if the DLJ says, I want to talk to you, can he just be like, nah? Yeah, you know, there's an old adage in the law that says uh, words to the effect of the grand jury is entitled to everyone's evidence. And that's true of everyone. In fact, the Supreme Court in the Nixon case during the Watergate era uh, ruled that that even counts for a sitting president. So the idea that a former vice president could say no thanks is really ludicrous. Now, what he may be talking about is going in cooperatively without a subpoena, uh, and he is considering that, perhaps. But if he were to push it and resist, I think he would fail in his quest. Is, is anything that he says uh, uh, to the DOJ, it is under oath by definition, right? Well, he could be interviewed, not under oath, but it's still a crime to lie to them. So regardless okay. of whether it's under oath or not, he is bound to tell the truth there. You know, it's not like the old Corey Lewandowski uh, phrase uh, testifying that, you know, I have no obligation to tell the truth to the media. When you're either t testifying in a grand jury or under oath or simply answering questions from the FBI or other government agent, uh, it is a crime to lie to them. Well, let me read a little bit from this New York Times um, uh, piece. And it says, complicating the situation is whether Trump might try to invoke executive privilege to stop uh, Pence or limit his testimony, except that he has taken with limited success so far with other officials. What would be the chances of Trump being able to prevent Pence's testimony? I think little to none. Um, I'm sure he will try. But we've already seen him play this card in his quest to prevent uh, the White House from turning over documents to the National Archives, uh, from the archives turning over White House documents to the January 6th committee. Uh, the Supreme Court even ruled on this and said that the interest in investigating the January 6th events outweighed any executive privilege that might exist. There's the additional factor that the court didn't even consider there, but uh, is also a factor, and that is that it is the incumbent president who possesses 
the executive privilege. And so it would be Joe Biden who would decide whether to invoke executive privilege or not. They're supposed to listen to a prior president. If a prior president uh, expresses a good faith belief that exposing these secrets would be harmful to the national security or the to the Republican general, the president should consider that. But in this instance, uh, when the goal is to protect the interests of the country, I can't imagine that the current president or any court would see that the executive privilege should prevail here. Now, let me let me play just a little bit of the January 6th hearings. This is Greg Jacobs talking about Pence refusing to leave the Capitol. Take a look. When we got down to the secure location, Secret Service directed us to get into the cars, um, which I did. Um, and then I noticed that the vice president had not. So I got out of the car that I had gotten, in, gotten into um, and I understood that the vice president had refused to get into uh, the car. Um, the, the head of his Secret Service detail, Tim, had said, I assure you we're not going to drive out of the building without your permission. And the vice president had said something to the effect of, Tim, I know you, I trust you, but you're not the one behind the wheel. I mean, just as a layperson, it seems to me a sort of ludicrous that a president, you know, Donald Trump has said he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue. This would be like Donald Trump shooting someone on Fifth Avenue, the person survives, and then him saying, well, there's executive privilege, you can't talk to that person because it would hurt national security. They're the victim. Pence is the victim, right? At least he's one of them. Can, a, can, a, can, can you assert executive privilege o- over the person up against whom you, you essentially attempted to commit a crime? Uh, you know, it seems absurd. And that's why I think ultimately this play will fail. It may result in some delay, but I think ultimately it will fail. You know, the purpose of executive privilege is to promote candor when you have aides sharing their advice uh, and their impressions with the president. You want to promote that. You don't want to have a chilling effect because they're always looking over their shoulder, worried that it will uh, be disclosed later. But that's not what this is. This isn't Mike Pence providing advice to the president. This is reacting to a violent attack. Um, I think that all of the events that occurred there in the Capitol that day are very relevant. We want to know what was going on with Mike Pence. We want to know why he wouldn't get into the car. Was it because he believed that his Secret Service would act in his best physical interest and take him out to protect himself? Or was he worried that the, there was some uh, uh, nefarious activity going on in the Secret Service? He also, Joy, was alone with President Trump when they discussed uh, some of those matters about whether Mike Pence could single-handedly uh, thwart the e- election. And so I think only he can provide the firsthand testimony that the rules of evidence would require to get that testimony in. So talking to him is absolutely essential to making this case. Absolutely. And I think it was essential for the January 6th committee, too. They just weren't able to. Barbara McQuaid, thank you very much. Always appreciate your expertise. Okay, before we go to break, I want to play you a little sound from Republican Senate candidate Herschel Walker today. Take a look. And, you know, at the same time, I love to debate Joy Reid. You know, uh, Senator Warnock. He's a slick, talker, smooth dresser guy. But in that debate, I took him to school because he he found out a lot of things he didn't know. And I can do the same thing with Joy Reid any time of the day. <laughs> I think people sit on TV and the talk is easy to talk. But I've been a man that have worked my whole life. I've built companies. I've signed in front of a paycheck. They've never done any of that. They've never done any of that. They don't know how to do it. I do. And I said, any day of the week she wanted to debate, she can show up here. And I debate her as well on any subject. She she come up with the subject and let's go at it. Okay, Herschel, come on. It ain't but a short walk. No, seriously. We've reached out to your team. We will have you on the readout any day and we can debate. Just tell us when. But I do want to make one thing clear, Herschel. You can't bring your friends. You see your little friends there? You can't bring them. 
You have to do this debate on your own. But come on, the doors of the church are open like the pastors say. And we'll be right back. For more than four decades, award-winning filmmaker Ken Burns has been one of our country's preeminent historians. In his latest book, Our America, A Photographic History, Burns presents a collection of his favorite photos that is described as embodying nearly 200 years of the American experiment. In his most recent PBS documentary, Burns examined a difficult period of that experiment, turning his lens on the American response leading up to and during the Holocaust. We are challenged as Americans to think about what we would have done, what we could have done, what we should have done. In our better moments, we are very good people, but that's not all there is to this story. And Ken Burns joins me now. Uh, it is always such a treat to talk to you. Um, the guru for, for all of us that want to be <laughs> documentarians. Thank you so much for being here. It's great to be with you, Joy. Thank you so much for having me. So there's so much to talk to you about. I want to talk to you about this book. Let me show it to you. It's fabulous. And I love a coffee table book and it's beautiful, fabulous uh, images of America. Tell us what's, what, what are we going to see in this volume and what are we going to experience? So, so it's been a labor of love for 15 years, Joy. I, I worked on nights and weekends on it while I was doing my films. I'm rooted in still photography. The basic building block of all the films are still photographs. My father was an amateur still photographer. My mentor was a still photographer, Jerome Liebling, whose photograph in 1949 graces the cover of the book. And so I wanted to go back. I've been thinking about this for years and just try to return full value to photographs. So there's, you know, 250 of them, one to a page, minimal caption. You look at them, you drink it in. It's all of us, good, bad, difficult, as you were saying about the Holocaust, joyous, funny, wars, peace, natural beauty, the whole the whole story of us uh, is there. All the things we're talking about today, you know, Indian schools uh, at, in Carlisle, this, the, the Capitol building and its earlier uh, architectural version, you know, inaugurations and peaceful transfers of power, the Statue of Liberty and the meaning of liberty, Jewish immigration, all of that stuff is there. I mean, really, to be honest, it's my America. But I think there's too much of that division now. And I've been we have a, a website called uh, KenBurnsUnum.com, which is trying to sort of take the evergreen themes of America represented in these photographs and the films I make and try to have a conversation with people and, and celebrate what we share in common. What I've learned, if I've learned anything over the more than four decades, is that um, there's only us and there's no them. And yeah. whenever anyone tells you they're them, you're, we're in big trouble and just run away. You know, um, you've chronicled everything from the, from the Civil War to your latest documentary, which I um, thoroughly enjoyed. It was so good. But it's you confront issues that are difficult to talk about in this country. And I've had Holocaust survivors, you know, and their children tell me that they feel like we're in a sort of 1930s moment um, in this country where there's an openness to fascism that they haven't seen <clears throat> since that era. And what do you make of Americans' resistance to understanding the, the, the difficult parts of our history such that we won't repeat them? 
You know, it's so that's such a wonderful question. And it goes to the heart of all of my work. You know, history doesn't repeat itself. uh, But as Mark Twain is supposed to have said, it rhymes. And so all of the films I do seemingly safely in the distant past aren't safe. You know, there's an America First Committee. What is you know, uh, Trump have. We're always on the precipice and we see all of this flirtation with um, authoritarianism, as as you put it. And in fact, you know, the New York Times about a month ago ran a piece about how people are concerned about democracy, but it's way down on the list of the midterm stuff. Well, the midterms have passed. We're sort of taking a sigh of relief. The, the battle isn't over. But what it said was that that concern about the fragility of our institutions, you know, we had three crises, the Civil War, uh, the Depression, and World War II, but never were things like uh, a free and fair election or the peaceful transfer of power or the independence of the judiciary questioned. Well, now they're questioned in the middle of a pandemic and all sorts of uh, bullying and, and divisions. And so I would urge people to, to look at this. Wynton Marsalis said in my jazz thing, sometimes a thing and the opposite of a thing are true at the same time. You can actually appreciate this if you're married, if you have children, if you have good friends, you know, you understand it's not absolute. I.F. Stone, the great progressive writer, uh, was asked sort of in a disappointing fashion by an acolyte why he liked Thomas Jefferson, clearly, I suppose, because of his ownership of slaves. And Stone said, because history isn't melodrama, it's, it's tragedy, which means to me that In melodrama, every villain is perfectly villainous. Every hero is perfectly virtuous. But life and history, which is recorded life, isn't like that. And so we have to figure out a way to understand each other. The book is an attempt to do that. All the films we have attempted to do that. And nothing is ever achieved if you run away and put your head in the sand and don't confront the really tough stuff. It's so brilliant. Uh, It's so brilliantly said, right, that no one is perfectly good and no one is perfectly evil. But it seems that there is a faction in this country that is demanding that, for instance, the founding fathers be portrayed as perfectly good. Otherwise, they won't allow anything else to be taught in school. If we assume that we're the most exceptional country on Earth, why wouldn't we be harder on ourselves than anything? And it's not harder. It's just true. You know, you want to look at this fact, the guy who articulated, distilled a century of enlightenment thinking into one one sentence, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, owned 600 human beings in his lifetime, didn't see the hypocrisy and the contradiction. And that's the story. That's That's interesting. That's who we are. And if you want to sort of bury race, you've you've basically essentially said we want to abdicate our position as the best country on earth. That is to say, we want not to be the best. We want to be ordinary. We want to be nativist. We want to stare, have our head in the sand and be ostriches. So, you know, have at it. But, you know, a lot of this is just political posturing. I mean, there's more than half of one political uh, party in in the country that believes that the other political party are pederasts and and are you know suck the blood of young children and you're going this is just a two party system in which we often disagree with each other about whatever but we don't demonize the other people into some subhuman thing. It's just a function of an out of control kind of media environment in which the id of everyone is allowed to do and the and the ego and the super ego that keeps us in check. But our yeah. elections just said, you know what? We don't want election deniers. 
We don't want these people who think, you know, these fabulous stories are true. Maybe it's compelling and it gets a good laugh at, at, at rallies. But, you know, we basically want our democracy to continue and we want to have a, at least a two party system. And we want to respect people who we disagree with, just as we hope they will respect us. So my work has always been about telling a complex story that doesn't throw the baby out with the bathwater, isn't so revisionist that it is, you know, compl- everybody's a villain. That That's the same melodrama as the other end of the scale. And you just say you have to be honest. Yeah. Well, uh, Ken Burns, you're not a pastor, but that was a sermon. And I'm just going to go ahead and say (laughs) amen and hallelujah. Ken Burns, thank you very much. And up next, Congress, uh, be sure to tune in, by the way, on Friday for more of my interview with the great Ken Burns. And up next, Congress finally moves to address at least one of the many injustices inflicted by European settlers on America's indigenous citizens. We'll be right back.